Really glad to be here with all of you today. It is a delight to be at Woodside. I've been here a few times, but last year was the first time I got to preach. So, so glad to be here with you. I want to tell you a little bit about what I'm going to do this morning. Because it's a little different than what Matt normally does, and frankly, it's a little bit different than what I normally do at home. Um, most of the time at Cross Park Church in Charlotte, we were preaching through a book of the Bible, so we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, just like we do here. But unless we believe, unless we believe that the books of the Bible are simply, you know, interesting thoughts and ideas, all generally revolving around the idea of God, we don't believe that. If we actually believe that the Bible has a unified theme, that it's all from God, that's all pointing with an emphasis on Jesus Christ to God's big picture plan, to who he is, to what he's doing. If we believe that, then there's a unity to the whole scripture, right? It's all pointing to the one God who sent it to us. It's all doing it through an emphasis on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is not right, it's not wrong to do, it's actually right and important occasion to back out, to step back a couple levels, and to see how the big picture informs the details, right? If you think big picture details, you have to have both of them to understand the other, right? The details make up the big picture. But if you don't understand what the big picture is, you can't make sense of the details. So what we're doing today is zooming out, looking at the big picture, some big picture themes in the Bible, so that as you're going along, I know you're in Philippians right now, Matt mentioned to me that um, a few weeks ago you briefly touched on this idea of union with Christ. So today's sermon, and you can see in your bulletin there, is about how we're united to Christ by faith and all that that means. At Cross Park, I'm currently preaching a series where we're doing this very thing. We're going through the whole Bible uh, this sort of winter and spring, and we're going through and looking at all the big themes and how they connect. So we're calling it the symphony of scripture. So you think a symphony, um, you know, typically I'm not a, an extremely useful person, but uh, we all sort of have a general idea, right? Symphony is all these instruments, sometimes voices as well, has multiple movements and themes. And over time, right, although there are different notes, some really beautiful, some loud, some quiet, some discordant, over time the themes come together. Um, they're put together in a way that brings unity and harmony from the instruments and the voices and even the themes in the music. And so what I'm doing is showing how the various themes in the Bible connect to each other and connect to the big picture. So we understand big picture what God's doing. And then anywhere we are in the text, we can go, oh, this relates to all the other things that God has already said. Today's topic, particularly union with Christ, is by itself a unifying theme. It brings together lots of things going on in the New Testament. And once you see it clearly, you'll see it's everywhere. It's one of those things, right? Once you see it, you know, wow, I'm going to see this all over the place. It is explicitly or implicitly on every page of the New Testament. One way or another, this is what's going on. So we read together Colossians 2. I have two main passages for our text. So if you want to keep your fingers here, Colossians 2. In Romans 8, okay? We won't reread Colossians 2 because we read it together. I'm going to read for us, though, right now, Romans 8, verses 9 through 17. Listen carefully, because this is what God has to say to us this morning. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. 
So then, brothers, we are not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Without it, we are lost. Without it, we are confused. Without it, we are destined to listen simply to our own thoughts and ideas and feelings. We're destined to listen to the voices around us, which may or may not tell us truth or have our best interest in mind. But Father, we know that in your word, you speak to us clearly, truly, and authoritatively. You give us exactly what we need to know. We are easily um, offended by your word. It does not tell us what we want to hear, but in fact, what we need to hear, what we need to hear is the best possible news for us. So we pray today that you will make our hearts receptive to what you want to say, that you will teach us your word, and that through it and by it, we will honor and glorify and enjoy you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you saw the article in the Wall Street Journal maybe three weeks ago. There's something interesting going on in Thailand. National elections are about to take place. And there's this phenomenon. They've noticed at least 10 plus, maybe more, but at least 10 politicians around the country in larger and smaller elections have legally renamed themselves. And they've taken the name Toxin. T-A-K-S-A-S-I-N, not Toxin, like a thing that will hurt you. Uh, Toxin Shinawatra is the former and still very, very, very popular prime minister of Thailand. He was a very loved politician. I don't know what happened, but something went bad and he didn't leave the country. But people love him, okay? So many people have changed their name legally. It'd be like if a Democrat changed his name to Barack, all right? Or if a Republican changed his name to Donald or George, okay? Legally changing their name to Toxin. Now, they're politicians, so you think you know what they're doing, right? They're trying to fool people in the vote for Not exactly. Not quite. It's something different than that. Actually, they're all from the same party as the former prime minister. They love him, they love his policies, they love his politics. They're not trying to fool people into thinking that the former prime minister is running for a city council in their town. Rather, they're trying to connect themselves with the prime minister in such a way that they're saying, if you like him, you'll probably like me. We're, we're like him. I like him so much. I've taken all his policies and all his politics and all his ideas. I've even taken his name. I've renamed myself Toxin, so you can know I'm trying to fully be as much like him as I can be. That is a picture of union with Christ. As we're connected to Christ, we get all the benefits of being connected to him, even of his name, right? And as we're connected to Christ, we are seeking by grace and by faith and by the Holy Spirit to actually become more like him, to imitate all that he loves, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to show grace where he shows Grace, And that's the idea of union with Christ, that we are connected to Jesus, we're united to him by faith, that on our own we're sinful and selfish, we run from God, right, we're rebels, and God in his grace through Jesus Christ has moved towards us, he's offered himself fully for our sins, he died a sacrificial 
substitutionary death that would have destroyed us. And on the third day, which we'll celebrate next Sunday, he picks his life back up, right? To show he has power over sin and evil and death itself. And now he says, anyone who comes after me, who believes in me, who connects themselves to me, you will have life and you will have it abundantly. And you get all of that because you're connected to him, right? Because you're united to him by faith. So look at that passage I, we read earlier, Colossians 2. We're going to sort of run through Colossians 2 as our overview passage. And then we're going to look at how union with Christ works itself out in several specific situations. One shorthand way to think of what union with Christ means is it's how you get the benefits that God wants to get to you. How you get them? By being connected with Jesus. And you'll see that as you go through all the different sections today. Um, look at Colossians 2. Oftentimes, and it's not wrong, and I've said it, and you said it, and it's not wrong. But oftentimes, we think primarily, I'm living life for Jesus. That's not bad. That's good, depending on what we mean. But oftentimes, right, we think, I'm working really hard to live life for Jesus. And I hope it works out. I hope I'm able to show some good things about Jesus. More fundamentally, more truthfully, I think, from the New Testament, it would be better to think about that we're living life with Jesus, because he's living life with us. He wants to live his life in and through us. He wants to actually wonderfully and mysteriously reproduce his life in us in a way that changes us from the inside out. So look at Colossians 2. Again, I'm not going to reread it. We're just going to kind of flow through it and see what's going on here and see, listen for this idea of us being connected to Jesus. First, he says that we've received him. We've believed in the gospel, right? We've heard the story about Jesus we recognize that it's true. It's more than just true. It's God's truth to us. And we believed it. Belief is not simply agreeing, right? It's not simply intellectual assent. Yes, that sounds true. It means I believe it in such a way that I put myself entirely in his hands. I'm leaning on him. I'm trusting him. He's become the center of my life. I want to actually respond to him in all ways. So yes, of course I Agree that the gospel is true, that Jesus lived and died and rose again. But also I believe it in the sense that I'm willing to put myself fully in his hands. I want him to be the one who leads and rules my life. I'm connected to him. He's in me and I'm in him. I've received him fully. And then you see in verse 7, it goes on to say that your roots are in him. You're rooted in him like a tree planted by streams of water. I think of Psalm 1. How does that tree get all its water and all its nutrients through its roots? Through its connection, right? You're connected to Christ and your roots in him give you everything you need. Everything you need for life and godliness comes from Jesus Christ. And as you're connected to him by faith, relationally, personally, organically, right? Not just intellectually. As you're connected to him, he gives you what you need and he leads you to follow him. Now, this can easily get off track, as we all know, right? We can all start out with great intentions and great ideas, and people get off, and that happened in Colossae. So right here, in the midst of all this, Paul addresses some false teaching. Look at verses 8 and 9. There's false teaching about who Jesus is. We love to take Jesus and make him in our own image. We love to take Jesus, and we're a little uncomfortable with how he's revealed himself in some manner, and so we tweak and change Jesus. Paul says, that's not from Jesus. Making him something other than what he is will keep you from being able to love and honor and enjoy him. Don't do that. Don't get off on who he is. 
And particularly here, you see in Colossians, Paul emphasizes the full deity of Christ. He's fully divine. He's also fully human. There's no one else and nothing else like him. He's fully human and fully divine. But here, Paul emphasizes, he's fully God. So if you're connected to him, you are fully connected to God. You're reconnected to him. Jesus has to be fully divine for you to fully know God. And then the logic, verse 10, is if Jesus is fully God, then the full life that he wants to give you, it's all yours. You can fully enjoy and experience God's grace because Jesus has all of it to offer to you. You receive the benefits, right? Some of them now, many of them now in this life, but also for all eternity, you'll receive the benefits of what God has for his people as you're connected to him. Look at verse 11. In him you have spiritual circumcision. God cleanses your heart from sin. He does this in a spiritual baptism, which is pictured by the physical ordinance or sacrament. Matt, depending on which word you want to use in Sunday school. Of baptism. Now listen, I'm a Presbyterian. Don't get nervous. I'm not going to give you a hard time today, I promise. You know what's so interesting about this passage is it's focused on unrelated to your view of you know, who should be baptized or whether you should dunk them or sprinkle them or dunk a bucket of water on their head. What's going on here is focused on what's going on inside. That ultimately, the circumcision God has to do in us is our hearts have to be circumcised, right? You have to have your sin taken away and put off. And the emphasis here really is on the internal. By the way, Baptists and Presbyterians believe that ultimately, however exactly you do baptism, the efficacy or the power of baptism only comes finally by the work of the Spirit and by faith, right? Ultimately, your baptism means nothing. No matter when you got baptized or how old you were, none of that means anything. It doesn't work magically. It works only as you have faith and as the Spirit works, right? And here he's saying, if that's true internally, then you know you've been connected to Jesus. And then he says, you were buried with him. You're buried with him. You connect to Jesus such that you're even considered dead with him. And if you're dead with him, sounds like bad news. The good news is he's alive. And so if you're dead with him, you're also alive with him. That's Paul's logic, right? You've been circumcised internally. You're connected to Jesus. Therefore, you have life. And look what he says, even the power, verses 12 and 13, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit of God who gave Jesus new life, he says that spirit lives in you. If you're in Christ, you saw in Romans 8, a lot of the same language, right? Romans 6 as well. The spirit who comes and raises Jesus from the dead is now, if you're in Christ, that spirit lives in you as well. He makes it then very clear in 13. Although we were dead, spiritually we are dead on our own. Without Jesus, we don't have spiritual life. We're dead on our own, yet God made us alive together with him, that we've now become participants in what Jesus has done. We're connected to him. And the reason that we need Jesus to do it is this issue he talks about in 13 and 14 of our debt. We owe God a debt. Now, what do you owe God? Think about it for a second. Well, everything would be a fine answer, certainly. You owe God everything. But you owe God a debt of honor. Glory, right? He's glorious. He's worth everything you have, but he's certainly worth all of your honor. And we don't give God honor and glory. We actually keep it for ourselves, right? 
We want the honor. We want the glory. We're very impressed with ourselves. And so we keep ourselves from giving everything we have to God. We want to make sure that I get what I get and I want what I want. And that leaves a debt. We don't call for God and give him what we owe him. And we on our own cannot fix that problem because of our sin, we're naturally bent away from God. We're turned away from him. And so here Paul says the only way to deal with that, you have a divine IOU. You owe God and you can't pay it. And so Jesus comes along and does it for us. It's an offense to God. We don't like talking about God being offended. It's right and good that God is angry at sin. It's right and good that God is angry at the sin that will destroy us. You know how sin destroys things, right? Think about how sin has destroyed a relationship that you love. Because both of you, maybe, probably, right, are acting sinfully towards each other. Sin comes along, it destroys things. And God sees that and he sees it as awful. And he says, I want to get rid of that sin. So God is angry at sin. He comes to destroy it in Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus has done on the cross. He takes the offense, he takes the debt that you owe to God and says, you can't pay it, I'm going to pay it for you. I'm going to discharge the debt for you, I have all the resources, I'll pay what you can't pay. Look at verse 14. It says it's been set aside, the debt's been set aside, but the language really means is it's been taken off of you, picture that you have a sign hanging around your neck with how much you owe, it's been taken off of you, it's been put on Jesus on such that he says, right here, on Good Friday, on the cross, I'm taking everything that you owe that you can't pay, and I'll discharge it all. So now you're free. You're free to reconnect with God. I've canceled your debt so that you can know him. You can enjoy him. You can come back into the family and back into the relationship with the Father. And you see in this whole passage, go back and read it again later today. Look for every time he says, in him or with him, or he's in us. It's everywhere. It's all over the place, especially as you read through Paul. You know, I remember a friend of mine in high school got a black Camaro. It was a while back. I didn't notice how many black Camaros there were right until my buddy had a black Camaro, and then I'm constantly looking for my buddy, and then we had tons of black Camaros growing up in Conover, North Carolina. Very popular where I live. It's a little bit like that. Once you're aware of something, right, you start to notice I didn't create black chimeras in my head. They were already there. I just hadn't seen them previously. Once you are aware that this idea of union with Christ is everywhere in the scripture, you'll start to notice it. Oh, yeah, it really is all over the place. This is what God is up to. There's no other way we can know God and access them except through his son. Jesus is the way to reconnect with God. And everything we have then comes from this connection with God. Him. And that's what I want to show you in these four points. Now, some of you are thinking, he hasn't even gotten to point one yet. He's going to go a lot longer than even Matt. Don't worry. <laughs> My points are shorter than you think. The perfect father has perfectly loved his perfect son. And he has invited us into heaven. Think about that. The perfect father has perfectly loved the perfect son. And he has offered to anyone who will come and turn away from themselves and turn to him, an opportunity to enter into that kind of perfect love. Now, the New Testament talks about that reality of salvation through a number of different lenses, through different angles, and they're all helpful and important. I've given you four of the big ones today in the outline. We're united to Christ by faith, 
in, all, in these four things, in justification, in adoption, in sanctification, and in glorification. They're in your outline there. So first, justification. Justification is the declaration that you are right before God. That you have been stamped with a seal of approval. He says, you're mine, I approve of you. It's legal language where he says, you're free and forgiven, your guilt has been done away with, you now belong to me. Uh, it's not wrong in relationships, uh, marriage relationships, parenting relationships, friend relationships, to say, that's great what you just said. I'm glad you say you're committed to cleaning your room, but the room isn't actually any cleaner than it was before. You know, we all do this, right? I'm glad you're committed to a relationship, but you haven't been home for dinner yet in the last three weeks. So I need you to actually show up for dinner if you say you're committed to coming for dinner. When we deal with other people, we say, I'm not interested in your talk as much as I am in you doing it. Do not apply that logic to God. Because when God says something, it is him doing it. Think about the beginning of all things. What did God do to create all things? Make a factory and then crank them out? No. He spoke. Let there be light. And it was. When God says something, he's a speaking God. When God says it, it is done. It is finished. So when God says, you're in Christ, you're mine, you're forgiven, it's true, it's done, it's finished. Do not take the, well, that's nice that God says that, but I know that I don't, I'm not very, you should have seen me at breakfast, I'm not very righteous. It's nice that he says that, but I know it's not really true. He's just saying it. False. When he says it, it is true of you. You are justified in him. So look at, you don't have to turn here. I've got some short verses. I'm going to read them to you. I'll tell you where they are. You can turn there or not. That's your call. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of my favorite passages on justification. Paul says this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is known as the great exchange. I want you to think of the two columns, the Jesus column and the you column, Okay. What is in these two columns? Well, he says, Jesus knew no sin. He had no sin, right? He never sinned. And so we think of Jesus, he's righteous because he never did anything wrong. And that's true. Exactly what Paul says. We call it his passive righteousness. He didn't do any wrong things. Therefore, he didn't have any sin to pay for. He did it all right. But you also know that to do the right things is not just not doing the wrong things. It's doing the things you ought to do, right? And Jesus did everything that the Father called him to do. He lived in full obedience and perfect harmony and communion with the Father. We call that his active righteousness. So he both didn't do anything wrong, but he also did everything good that needed to be done so that he has all possible righteousness in his account. It looks really good on that side. Then there's our side. And naturally... We do not in any way live up to what God calls us to do. In fact, the Bible tells us that our best efforts are like filthy rags. Um, I'm not a car person. I have cars. I drive them, but I don't know how to fix them or anything. I can add oil, which I need to do occasionally in one of my cars. And if I spill some oil, which I always do, I grab an oil rag, right, and a nice little t-shirt, whatever it is, and wipe up that oil. Now, if I brought that rag inside and ask my children to eat off that rag, they would be unlikely to do so. 
What if I said, hey, I understand it. It's dirty. I'm going to throw it in the wash, and then you can have your nails off this oil rag. Here, put your hummus right here in the middle of this oil rag and eat it off of there. They would not agree to that idea. Why? Because they know that that oil rag is now stained and tainted. It's nasty. Nobody wants to eat off that oil rag. You can say you cleaned it, but I'm taking a look at it. That thing is not clean. That's our best efforts. Our best efforts are that tainted. Our worst efforts are much worse, right? So I'm really religious. Yeah, but you're kind of haughty and self-righteous about it, let's be honest. You see, I'm really nice. I'm kind to people. Well, but aren't you just trying to make them like you? I'm a hard worker. Yeah, but you're just trying to get ahead for yourself, right? Like, I really am trying to be a good person. And yet we know that deep down, deep down we're motivated by all sorts of wrong things in our do-gooding. Because in reality, what we're motivated by, naturally, deep down, is what? Me, me, me. For mine, mine, mine. And that's, that's who we are deep down, naturally. And so what we need is Jesus to come along and say, your column is, at best, filthy rags, at worst, full of unrighteousness. My column is full of all righteousness, active and passive, and I'm going to swap them. I have no sin. You have all sin. I have all righteousness, you have no righteousness. Let's switch! And I'll take yours and you take mine. Let me give you a silly example of how this works. When I was a younger man, before I was married, maybe this is why I wasn't married for a while, I don't know. I used to watch The Simpsons a lot. Not typically date fair for the ladies. And there was a great episode where Bart caught his principal and his school teacher kissing in the hallway when no one was at school. And so he realizes I've got something on the principal now. Principal calls him to his office. Bart, how can we make the situation go away? Bart thinks about it for a second. I want you to switch my permanent record with Martin's permanent record. Martin is this kind of do good, straight A, never gets in trouble kid. And Skinner opens the files, and Martin's record, you know, is like this, has his name, A, nothing he's ever done wrong. And then Bart's file is like this. Skinner has to like barely can get the whole thing on his desk. Boom. He goes, switch the contents of this file. So Skinner does. He puts Bart's record in Martin's file, Martin's record in Bart's file. He fixes his permanent record. And that's like what Jesus has done for us, except our file is the fat one of the wrongs, and Jesus' file is the infinite file of all his righteousness. And that's what he switches with you. So that he really gets and takes your stuff, your unrighteousness, your sin, and you really get and take his stuff, which is all his righteousness. So that God can say with a straight face and mean it, you have become, if you're in Christ, you've become the righteousness of God. And notice the key phrase in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, in him is how this happens. Because you're connected, you're in Christ, and God sees you like he sees his son. The perfect love he has for his perfect son, he now applies that to you because you're in him, and he sees that you're in Jesus, and he treats you like he treats his perfect son. Now, the truth is, right, we go, that's great, I'm glad he considers me righteous, but I don't particularly seem or feel very righteous. Let's keep moving then to adoption. What we get in union with Christ is not just forgiveness. The New Testament tells us tons of other good 
things we get in union with Christ. And the next thing is adoption. Let me read Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So in him, in Jesus, by our connection with him by faith, we have an inheritance, he says. We're in the family now. This language is really interesting and important. It shows up several places in the New Testament. If you want to think more about this, you can go to crossparkchurch.org. I don't get any money or like, I don't even know if anybody ever looks at those sermons. But if this idea of adoption and inheritance piques your interest, you can go check out the sermon I preached two weeks ago on the topic. It's a fascinating idea, right? That when you're adopted into the family legally, you're fully in the family. And what he's saying here is that Jesus has determined to give an inheritance to his people. And when you come into the family, you get the whole thing. It doesn't really matter when you came into the family or how you came into the family, right? As long as you're in the family legally, if the will says, give all my goods to my children, the person executing the will is going to say, um, when did you come into the family? What's your, who's, a, who's a child legally? These names on this list, they're written here in the list. They're all in. What adoption tells you is that you count. God says you count fully as my child. If I'm adopted you, you count. You're in all the way. Jesus is the natural son of God, right? We are adopted children of God. We belong to him because he's decided to adopt us. Now, there's two angles on adoption. One is the one that we think about, which is very helpful. When a family adopts a small child, typically, right? This child doesn't have a home or a family for some reason. Something's happened. And this family brings him or her in. And they give them a home, a place. And they love them. And they give them what this child needs. That's a really warm and concrete idea. Union with Christ, justification, sanctification. These words can kind of bounce off our heads and our hearts sometimes, right? That's a churchy word in some of you. But when you say adoption, and you picture a small child who's alone and has nothing and no one, but now they're in a family, they have all the love of that family. It's a very warm and helpful picture. Now, there's one other picture that you don't know about adoption that Paul had in mind as well. In the Roman world, it was fairly common for the head of the Roman household, called a paterfamilias, to adopt adults as his heirs. Maybe he didn't have any heirs, or maybe his heirs have turned out to be miscreants, and they've proven that they're going to run off and ruin the family legacy. And the job of the head of the household was actually to preserve the honor and the name and the money that this family has. Therefore, because I don't have a suitable heir for whatever reason, I'm going to adopt this adult over here because I'm determined to pass on the legacy. I'm determined to pass on all my goods and benefits to the next generation so my name will continue. And so what Paul is thinking when he says that God has predestined you, blow your mind, right? How before anything existed did God set his love on me and choose me? Because he did. Because the Bible says so. I don't fully understand all that it means, but it's very good news for you. And it's very good news for me. It means that God in his wisdom and sovereignty, before I did anything, he didn't, he didn't say, I'll give that one the inheritance because he looks really handsome or competent. 
He says, I'm going to set my love on my children. And he's determined then to make sure that you get the inheritance, the name, the money. You get the whole thing. You get all his benefits. By the way, ladies especially, let me say this to you. When Paul here says in multiple places about adoption, he talks about being a son, he's not being misogynistic here. What he's saying is in the Roman world, to get the full inheritance legally, you have to be a son. And what he says in Galatians 3 and 4, go read it sometimes. In the middle of this passage talking about adoption, he mentions there's no male nor female, saying everyone and anyone who comes to Christ gets the full inheritance. And the reason he uses the son language is not because he doesn't like daughters. I like daughters. Matt likes daughters. Daughters are wonderful, right? He's saying legally, at his time, if he just said your sons and daughters, people are like, what does that mean? Legally, there's some problems. When he says you're all sons... Of your you're all sons. He means you all really will get the inheritance. I want you to know that you're going to get the full thing. Jesus is determined in his adoption of you to give you the inheritance. So adoption is about identity. He's given you a new identity. He says you count fully as children. And so you, know, you get what Jesus gets. Think about it. Jesus is loved. You don't belong to the Father. Jesus is smiled on by his Father. You get to smile. Jesus has all righteousness. You get his righteousness. Jesus is the heir. You're the heir. In all times, Paul says, both Galatians 4 and Romans 8, well, if you're a child or a son, then you're an heir. Right? You get the whole thing. You're fully in. You fully count in the family. Now, part of what's important with union in Christ, when you're connected to Jesus, you get the whole enchilada. You get all of it, okay? So the four things I'm listing, you get all four of those things. You can't say, well, I got justification and I got some adoption, but I didn't get sanctification and glorification. I just kind of got part of it. One commentator said, to separate these things would be to accept the legal status of being God's child, but refusing to move into his house and call him father. Right? When the kid is adopted formally at the courthouse, they're like, thanks, this was awesome. I'm leaving now and not coming home with you people, right? That's not how it works. And the good news for us is if you're united to Christ, you get the whole thing. You get justification, yes, but you also get adoption. And it's supposed to change you and motivate you. I'm a son now. I'm an heir. I'm a child. I belong to the family. I have a new name, right? Jesus has put his name on me. I'm a Christian. Meaning, fundamentally, I'm defined by who Jesus is and what he says rather than how I think about myself. So our experience in being in the family is not always smooth and easy, Right? You ever had a family dispute? You ever had any family discord? I mean, we drove 12 hours yesterday, was it? We might have had a moment of family discord. Dad might have lost his cool at some point on the George Washington Bridge. Who knows? Thankfully, I didn't have to turn left on Queens Boulevard this time, the way I came in. I got to go right on Queens Boulevard. I was very happy. Our reality, right, is that even though we're in the family, we don't necessarily experience all the goodness and fullness that it means, which is why we need point three. Sanctification. That God actually wants to change us and grow us. He wants to make us more and more progressively over time. He wants to make us more and more like Jesus to put off our sin, to put on Christ, to say no to sin and yes to what God has for us. Uh, Colossians 1.28. This is actually the theme verse for my church. That's not why I picked it. It's just a good verse. But it illustrates our point. Him we proclaim... Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom to what end? This. 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that's the goal, right? Paul's saying the goal of my proclamation is not simply that people say, okay, I agree. He's saying, I want you to come fully into the family and actually grow in Christ. The goal is to mature and to grow. Now, goal, growth in the Christian life, as you probably know, is not smooth. You've been a Christian for very long, you probably know that. Growth is not linear, right? It's not just like a smooth upward line that everything gets better all the time. It's much more kind of like this, right? Kind of like a roller coaster at times. And it feels difficult to grow. So I want you to turn now to Romans 8, that other place I told you to bookmark that I read for us at the beginning. Romans 8 is a helpful place to think about what growth in Christ looks like. We're going to do the same thing we did with Colossians 2, right? We're not going to go word by word at this point in the sermon. We're going to kind of run through and get the flow of what Paul's thought is and how it relates to our growth. He says here in Romans 8 that union with Christ also, obviously, means full union with the triune God. And he emphasizes here that if you're united to Christ, you're united to his spirit. That the spirit of God is at work in you because God, being three in one, right? Father, Son, and Spirit are always working together in harmony and cooperation, of course. The Trinity is one of those things, right? It's impossible to understand, but impossible not to. Uh, Augustine said, if you try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. If you don't try to, you'll lose your soul, right? It's this terribly difficult thing. One God, three persons, blah, but it's what the Bible teaches. The Bible just assumes it and sticks it out there, so we've got to take it seriously. And here he's saying, obviously, if you're connected to the Son, you're also connected to the Spirit. And this very Spirit gives you life. You have life in the Spirit. If you have Christ, you have the Spirit, verses 9 and 10. And then in verse 11, he emphasizes what we said earlier. This Spirit, this Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of resurrection. He's brought resurrection to Jesus, so therefore he brings resurrection to you. Think about this. The few resurrections we have pre-Jesus in the Bible, they're, they're lowercase r's, right? Um, is Lazarus around somewhere currently that you know of? He's not, right? Jesus raised him from the dead, but then he died again. But Jesus comes back, not just alive again, but with new life. So what we celebrate on, on Easter morning is not simply that he's alive. Obviously, that's very significant. But that he's come back with new life. It's kind of a capital R resurrection or a capital L life. He's come back with this new thing saying this brand new, truly new thing that God's been promising all along has finally broken through. And I'm the first version of it. I'm the first representative of the new kingdom and the new life. And anyone who comes in me, I'm going to drag you with me into this new world. And eventually that new world will dominate and we'll have new heavens and new earth. But along the way, as you follow me, there's going to be the ups and downs of growth. So you need the spirit to give you life. He says you have these old bodies, which doesn't mean your age. doesn't mean you have a creaky knee, though I'm sure you do if you're over 40. Everything creaks increasingly. And as some of you are like, you're not that old. I'm 44. And I'm sure 54 and 64 and 74, right? More things creep. That's not what he means. He means your bodies belong to this old reality, this old age, right? And he says, Jesus is coming with something new. The Spirit is new. So the Spirit is brand new with capital L life and capital R resurrection. So he can give real life even in these bodies that belong to the world that is passing away. This world will cease to exist as it is. And it'll be replaced by something that goes beyond anything we can dream of. That's really good news. 
and it's held out to us as hope for how we live now. And as Paul continues, he says, because of all these truths, you don't belong to the flesh, you belong to the spirit. Don't keep living to the flesh, that's death. Live to God. Live in the power of the spirit that I've given you. Give yourself fully to God and his ways instead of continuing to give yourself to your old ways. Right? We all know how that works. Well, but it felt good. Well, but I couldn't help it. Well, I mean, yes, it's very appealing. But he's saying, fundamentally, that's not who you are anymore. You're a son. You're an heir. You belong to God. So listen. Uh, again, theologically, we're all in the same world here that we live in. We rightly, rightly call ourselves sinners because we see that fundamentally we're so bent and broken away from God and towards ourselves that we're sinners. And yet, the New Testament for the Christian talks about you as if you are a son and a saint who struggles mightily with sin rather than like a sinner who every now and then does something. Think about it. It's the, I mean, we are sinners and saints, right? They're both true. We, we live in lots of tension and frustration over that fact. But he's saying fundamentally your new identity in Christ is you're a son, you're an heir, you're a saint, meaning you're a set-apart person for God, right? It changes everything. It changes everything. Imagine if you went to the gym and said, this isn't really going to work, I'm sure. And you picked up the barbell, and you did two curls, and said, see, they didn't do anything. I'm going home. Right? Everyone went laughing. Like, what? what? If you went to the gym and said, this is going to be a road, it's going to be challenging, I'm going to have to eat better and exercise a lot if I want to, but I have confidence that if I actually engage the process, maybe something's going to happen here, right? That's, that you have to go to the gym like that, otherwise, why bother? There's no point in going over there, right? If you think this is not possibly going to work. If we only think of ourselves primarily as, I'm a sinner who might do something good occasionally, well, then we're not actually going to lean into what God has for us. If we think, God says, I'm a son who struggles mightily with sin, but fundamentally, I'm a son, and he calls me to be who I am rather than to live in my old self. Then you'll find motivation. And Paul's holding out these ideas here as motivation. And as he goes on through Romans 8, he even says, you've got the spirit. He's the spirit of adoption. The Spirit makes you a son and reminds you that you're a son. He even, with your spirit, helps you call out for help. Abba, Father, I'm struggling. My sin is killing me, but I belong to you. Help. Father, help me. That's a great prayer. It's very simple, right? It's a great prayer. I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. It's not going very well. But you say something better and different. You say I'm your son, so help me. Give me your spirit. Help me grow and change. And then he works around to verse 17, where he basically says, we're heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Now think about this. So we come back to the painfulness of life in a fallen world, and even the suffering that comes with our growth. Growing is painful. Um, Again, I have elementary age kids or those who were recently in elementary school, and at various points we've had growing pains, right? Actual growing pains. If something hurts for no particular reason, but you know what a growing pain says? This is it tells you you're about to grow. It's good. It's, growing pains don't feel good, but the good news is they tell you the conditions are right for growth. And there are serious growing pains in the Christian life. God 
rarely, I'm not going to say never, but I don't think that's true, but God rarely grows significantly without answer. That doesn't sound like good news, right? But I think it's true, so the truth is that you free. Because if it's true, there's no point in living in pretend world. And here's the thing, look at what Paul says here. As we're suffering with him, wait a second, I'm united in Christ. So I'm reminded that in one sense, I've already suffered with him on the cross, right? I, I died with him. And now he's with me as I suffer because I'm identified and connected to him. But all of this suffering now is for what? So that you will not suffer in the future. So there will be no eternal suffering. All of your suffering is on Christ and whatever you experience of it now. No matter how awful it feels today, I'm sure some of you are in awful suffering that no one here knows about. Or maybe people do know. I don't know. Paul's not trying to say your suffering doesn't matter. It's silly. It's unimportant, right? You just stubbed your toe. No big deal. He's saying the worst possible suffering you can experience, whatever it is, the future is so good. The future is so amazing that even the legitimately worst stuff, the really awful stuff that threatens to undo you from the inside, he says all of that will feel like a tiny distant memory compared to the goodness and the greatness of what he wants to do. And that's where he's leading you. And he's going to be with you every step of the way. He wants to help you grow and change and experience and enjoy Christ along the way. And he wants you to do it together. Um, Matt said in Sunday school, our union with Christ means we're united to one another, which means we come together in communion together around God and his word and his table. And so I want to read to you Ephesians 2.22. In him, there's the phrase again, right? It's everywhere. Like you, you read that quickly, you don't think about it. But there, that's how this is true. In him. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Uh, the word you there, see our English is not very flexible on this point. We don't have a plural or singular you, right? So where I live, we would say y'all. It's plural, right? Uh, what do you say, please? Is there like a, is it you guys or youans? Or, I don't have any idea. This is, this is like from like bad sitcoms. I don't know. We say y'all. Plural, you. Right? You can say you or y'all. This is the y'all word in Greek. It's the plural you. So he's saying your union with Christ, of course, is about you having faith. Of course it is. But it's not isolated to just you, right? That if you have faith, then immediately you're connected to Christ and to his body. You're in the family, right? So it's a y'all reality. It's a group reality. And you need to see that, that you can't actually live out the New Testament commands without y'all. You can't do any of the one another passages of Scripture by yourself. Can you? No, of course, I mean, by definition. You can't love one another yourself. You've got to have at least one other person to love another. And we have a church, right? Church Universal, but also this is a local church where you can come in, and with all the warts and ups and downs and wackiness that goes on in every church, every church, by the way, is wacky. I'm sure Woodside is wacky. My church is wacky. Because it's full of wacky people, right? Who are saints and sinners. And blah, you know, comes out all over the place on each other. But God is saying, I've called you into this because it's good. Because you're in my family, and I'm going to be at work, particularly as you sit in the family and see this stuff worked out. In fact, I'm making you into not just like a less wacky church, 
So I'm making you into a temple for my dwelling place. That in the end of all things, God's people are going to be his dwelling place. We're the temple, right, moving forward. Which takes us to our last point. There's a reality, a future reality, that you've got to keep in mind. That all the ups and downs now, all the like, God says this stuff, it doesn't feel like it's really that true today. All of that is rightly understood and even relativized by the fact that there's an unbelievable future coming. I mentioned earlier, but look at 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So pause. We're connecting. This is connecting points three and four. Sanctification. God's actually at work. So he's actually making you worthy of his calling, meaning your desires for good actually start to happen by his power, right? It's his power that powerfully works within us. So we engage, but we never pat ourselves on the back for what God has done, right? You don't pray and then go, good job, Jeff. I pray God did it, I thank God. Uh, there's no sound of one hand clapping yourself on the back in Christianity, right? That's not Christian. It's not. It can't be. Because every growth and change that happens in my life, although I have to, I'm fully engaged in it, it's his power that powerfully works within me. So you see here in 11, he's setting you up like, I'm sanctifying you now. I'm making these things actually true in your experience. 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. There it is again. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, Jesus is glorious and wonderful. And as you start to live that out, you're actually displaying to the world, you're glorifying him. You're lifting him up and saying, look how great Jesus is. He's so great, I'm willing to follow him. I'm willing to believe him on the stuff that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm willing to follow him on things that go against my culture. I'm willing to follow him even though he's actually telling me that I have to change, that I'm the problem. He's so great, he's worth it. He's worth everything. We glorify him, right? We say he's great. But then he says we're glorified in him. So Jesus, we owe him glory and honor, we said. He's worth all glory and honor. He should have all glory and honor. And here's the great, delicious, delightful irony for the Christian. Jesus is owed all glory and honor. You are owed none. And yet, because he has switched accounts with you, he has decided to offer you and share with you his glory. You don't deserve it. It's not yours. It's not from you. It's his. It's from him. And yet, because you're in him, right, you get it. He lets his glory reflect on his people so that we can experience him as good and glorious and we actually shine with some of his reflected light. Now, that language in 2 Thessalonians sounds present tense and Paul in the letters of Thessalonians is talking about how the now and the future relate. Let's make it explicit in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears. See, he's your life. Why? Because you're in him. And everything you have comes from him. He's your life, not just because you like him, but because everything spiritually true about you is true because Jesus has given it to you. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he's saying, there's a future coming. And that future is so bright and good that as long as you're connected to Jesus, you'll get to see it and experience it. He's your life, right? You're dead in your sin. You're 
connected to Christ, you die with him, but he comes back to life and he gives you new life. And so all of that is bound up. It's not just for now, right? It's for all time and beyond time. It's for eternity. He's going to do this. There's going to be glory, and you're going to get to see it and experience it and participate in it. And this week, as you struggle and suffer over something, imagine what a difference that makes. That actually he changes you because he's taking you somewhere and you know it's coming. Hey, for a couple weeks before we drove up here, you know, we didn't just yesterday morning get up and like pack and figure out where to go. All right, we started thinking about the trip. I mean, the kids were like, yeah, we can't wait to go. It's oh, another week of school before New York. And, of course, we were like, we need a hotel room in D.C. on the way back. And I don't want to drive down 95 any more than I have to. And can we stop somewhere? Is there somewhere to stop, you know, that's right off the interstate? But you got to take a right, but it's on the left, so you can get back on the interstate the right way. You know, can I find a gas station like that? I did all this prep work on the trip. The trip hadn't happened yet, but the future coming trip informed the now, right? You're excited. You're prepping. You're planning. I'm Googling stuff in Manhattan that we want to do this week, right? All of that happens. Why? Because the future is this thing. It's out there. It's coming. You want it. And it changes now. And that's what Paul's saying. There's this glory and it's coming if you'll look at it and see it and spiritually Google it. If you'll come to the word and see and look ahead, what's it going to be like? It changes how you live now. You get it all. New body, new heavens, new earth, full glory, full presence of God. You know you're fully forgiven. You get all of it. It's all coming. And how do you know it's actually coming to you? If you're in Christ. God promises to love us, and in Christ he proves it. God promises to take away our sin, and in Christ he proves it. What is God like? Look at Jesus. Full of mercy and grace. Rightly angry at sin, and yet moving towards us. To forgive and remove our sins so we can reconnect with him. That's what he's about. He's proved it in Jesus. We get everything because we get it in Jesus. Last verse and then we're done. 2 Corinthians 1.9. This is a great verse. 2 Corinthians 1.19. I'm sorry. Not 9. See, my eyes are creepy too. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, Jesus Christ was not, yes and no, but in him, it is always yes. In Jesus, God's answer to his people, will you be saved? Yes. Will you be loved? Yes. Will it all be worth it? Yes. Will the future be glorious? Yes. Can I hang in there? Yes. God says yes, all of it. All of it is yours, and all of it is true, and all of it is yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus unites himself to everyone who trusts him. He gives himself fully to us so that every day we can hear and know he loves us. He loves us fully and entirely. He's for us. He knows everything about us, and he has our best interest in mind, and he is always, always with us. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her that we could know him and be united to him by faith. Let's pray.
Father, we are thankful that you have moved towards us sinners, truly. On our own, we're entirely sinful and broken and confused and frustrated. Uh, Sometimes we don't even realize that we've lost you in our sin. We think we're fine. And yeah, the world's hard, but I don't even know if there is a God or if I need one. And you have moved into the lives of us, those of us like that. And you have shown grace and mercy and kindness. You've moved our hearts to want to come and follow you. And so I pray this morning for anyone who does not currently follow you and isn't sure if they want to, that they will see the grace and kindness that you've displayed to us in Jesus. That they'll see that you want to reconnect us with you and you want to connect us to Christ that we may know you. And I pray that anyone here who today, if they sense and hear your voice, your pull to turn back to you, that indeed today they will turn and find grace and mercy. Father, we also thank you that those of us who do know you, as we struggle, we need all of these reminders. As Matt said, spiritually we forget. It's all over the Bible. Israel forgot. We forget. Remember, remember, remember. And it's not just remembering it in our head, but remembering in our heart that we're sons We're children. We're heirs. We belong entirely to you. You're entirely for us. You love us fully. And that it's out of that love and that new identity, it's out of your declaration that we're truly accepted by you. It's out of all of this that you want to change us and help us. You want to love us. You want us to experience your grace and goodness as we turn back to you over and over again. It's not a one-time thing. Of course, we have to come to you and know you, but then relationally, we are always turning away again and running from you and being foolish and selfish. We thank you that your grace is for us to, even as Christians, as we walk and as we should know better, we wander off and you lovingly bring us back. You do whatever it takes to bring back your lost sheep. And so we pray today that you'll motivate our hearts, that it's only in Christ alone that this is possible, that all of our hope and life and righteousness and future and present help, it's all bound up in Christ alone. That only in him do we have an opportunity to know and enjoy you. Father, we thank you that this whole thing, everything we talked about today, it's all your idea. We didn't and couldn't come up with any of it on our own. We would have come up with some other scenario. One that would have looked better for us along the way, but would have been much worse for us in the end. And instead, you have called us to see our sin and to feel the weight of it, and yet as we turn to experience delight and glory, the likes of which we still cannot imagine. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace for connecting us to you. Now as we sing of the Christ who has loved us well, we pray that you would cement these truths in our hearts, that they may change how we live and how we enjoy you this week. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.